This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, August 12th, 2022. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to KUAF, your public radio station since 1985. I'm Kyle Kellams. With me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilly with Talk Business and Politics, ready to help us wrap up another week of news. Michael, welcome back to the show. Again, thanks for having me. Well, let's let's pick up with traffic at the Fort Smith Regional Airport. We know that the pandemic has hit uh, airports hard. And while it's not back to where it was before the pandemic, there's more activity going on. Yes, it, it's coming back. And uh, it had a, um, it's had a kind of a surprising increase. I knew it was going to come back, but uh, through the first seven months of this year, it it's got a uh, little over 35,000 employments. That's up almost 25% compared to 2021, uh, which um, was a recovery year. And just kind of really to set the stage, it might pull back a little bit. Uh, in 2019, uh, the airport was kind of it was on a um, uh, about a six- or seven-year growth trend. In 2019, had a little over 95,000 employments. And then, as we know, the world came to a halt in 2020, and employments dropped down to just under 39,000. I mean, that's a that was a considerable drop off. Last year, employments for the entire year was uh, just a little over 47,000. So, yeah, it's a it's a slow recovery. Um, the total through that first seven months of 2022 is still down about 52 percent compared with where it was at the same time in 2019. So, still some obviously some recovery and look for Fort Smith. We could say the same thing about uh, just about any other airport in the country, except maybe for X and X and a, which is kind of a unique airport in terms of the market it serves. But um, it's not, uh, it's not unusual to, you know, see these trends as we're seeing in Fort Smith, for example, through May, uh, which is the most, which is the latest data the U S department of transportation has, Employments through the U.S. were up 31, uh, just a little over 31 percent compared to the same period in 2021. So it's coming up around the country and hopefully it'll continue. I think um, also this week, uh, the Department of Transportation announced that the airport will receive a $155,000 grant to help it um, support uh, a new connection. You know, right now, the only connection out of Fort Smith is to DFW. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, in July 2020, Delta discontinued their flights between Fort Smith and Atlanta. So Fort Smith has just kind of been a one-trick pony in terms of connections. Uh, the grant could give them a connection to Chicago O'Hare or another Northeast hub. That's what they're hoping for. I talked to Airport Director Michael Griffin. He said that the earliest that would happen would be 2023 because there's just a lot to work out. And as we know, there's some staffing shortages in the industry, so um, it'll be interesting to see um, if they can get that or how quickly they can get that ginned up. And they're primarily going to be working with American Airlines, which is providing the service now between Fort Smith and DFW. And XNA is using a similar uh, grant to try to get uh, nonstop to San Francisco back. Yep, trying to get that West Coast connection back. So. You know that they're that as we all know, X and A is driven by a much different market. It's primarily Walmart vendor um, traffic. Um, obviously, serves a, a market area that's uh, in terms of population is twice the size of Fort Smith. But uh, again, Fort Smith 
you hated to see the the pandemic hit for many reasons, uh, but it really just put a kink in the growth that uh, the regional airport had been seeing for the last six, seven years. We have higher interest rates than we did a little bit ago. Uh, Inflation and economic concerns are still there. Not surprisingly, that may be taming home sales across the nation a little bit, including in the River Valley. Yeah, we're we're seeing it across the board. And this is one of those things, you know, we've talked about, you and I have talked about building permit gains in the area, sales tax gains that just keep going up kind of surprisingly. This is one metric that's kind of doing what we thought it would, which was just kind of would moderate somewhat. And the Fort Smith metro area is no different, again, than other metro areas. Just past few years, it's been on um, quite a burn in terms of gains and home sales. Really, you know, it's it's been a good time to be a realtor uh, in the Fort Smith metro. But home sales through June, uh, they're down 4.4%. And that's a that's a little bit more than the increase of, of the de, uh, the three point three percent decline that we saw through April. Um, but the, on the upside of that is the the value of those sales uh, was a little over almost four hundred twenty four million, and that was up almost ten percent compared to the, with the same time last year. So the number obviously is down, but the value of those homes are up, and that metric is best. Um, quantified in the fact that the average home price for all home sales in the metro for the first six months was 217, just a little over 217,000. And that was up almost 15%. So um, people are still paying more for homes, but I think that's going to continue to moderate also. Um, And just by way of comparison, uh, the National Association of Realtors reported that existing home sales fell over 14% in June compared with June 2021. So this, as we noted, it's a trend um, trend across the board, but um, they are moderating, but it, but they're slowing down. Let's keep this in mind, some perspective. They're slowing down from what was a pretty uh, robust period in 2021. So they're up, they were up against some pretty tough comparisons to begin with. You know, you can be an election observer for decades and still get surprised there was a city a city primary in Fort Smith this week for an at-large position. Boy, that one snuck up on me. I, I don't know how I didn't know this was going to happen, but there it was, a city primary. Yeah, this is one of the oddities of Fort Smith city government, and if we wanted to talk about the other oddities, we would need a couple more hours just for the summary. Uh, but uh, this is one of them. I don't I have to think that if you put smart people in a room, they could come up with a better system. But this is a better this is the system we've got in terms of how they elect seven people to serve on the Fort Smith Board of Directors. Um, so the way it works is if more than three people file for a seat, there has to be a runoff, uh, or excuse me, a primary, what they call a primary election, and that primary is on August, usually the um, second Tuesday in August. And then whoever, if someone doesn't get 50.1%, then the top two folks will go to the November election. Um, so that's that's the system we have. Um, and so of the four um, positions up this year, only one of them had three people apply, and that was the position, the at-large position five seed. And so Christina Katsavis and, and the incumbent city director Robin Dawson 
uh, where the top two vote getters, Christina Katsavis, received most of the votes, um, but she didn't get, um, you know, over 50.1%. So those two will face each other. Um, uh, Katsavis is kind of is definitely the new kid on the block. She's 37 coming in. She's the uh, owner of a jewelry company. Um, and we, uh, and then of course Dawson is a, uh, former public school teacher, uh, has been on the board and now we'll just finishing up a four year term. So it'll be interesting to see if they're, uh, if they, if the, uh, if the vote trend continues, we may have a new member on the board come November. So let me get this straight. If one of those three or more candidates in the city primary does get more than 50.1%, then they've won the seat and they would their race would not be in November. That you, you got it. That is an oddity. They didn't. Okay. Yeah. So but we I'm sure we someone well, I'm not sure. I'm kind of being facetious, but it it almost sounds like someone decided Let's figure out the most complicated way to do this, and let's do it that way. Finally, there is a new uh, person in charge at the U.S. Marshals Museum coming to Northwest Arkansas from a museum in Davenport, Iowa. Yes, uh, Mr. Ben Johnson uh, will begin uh, August 22nd. Uh, Unfortunately, the former um, museum CEO, Patrick Weeks, uh, continues to... Uh, he still faces two felony charges. Back in um, March, he uh, had a little run-in with some um, utility workers in Fort Smith, and Mr. He was inebriated and waved a gun at him, and that's apparently not a good thing. So he was um, – uh, he's no longer there. So Mr. Johnson comes in, and Mr. Johnson comes in at a pretty um, interesting time. They are in the process of getting their exhibits in place. Um and hopefully they will, um, you know, their hope is that by February or March of um, uh, 2023, they will have the exhibits installed. And then the, ideally the museum could open after that. You know, we've talked, this has been a pretty arduous process to get the money raised and get this museum open. It began in early 2007 and they were hoping it would just be a, you know, five to 10 year effort. And it's been considerably longer. So Mr. Johnson, uh, he may get the opportunity to be the one to be the head of the museum when it does finally open. All right. You can read about all of this. So much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael, have, oh, and we should mention that the Talk Business and Politics 40 Under 40 event is coming up. You're going to be honoring 40 young people who are making a difference. Yes. Next, uh, next Tuesday, 16th. And Great event with uh, Martine Pollard. Uh, the great Martine Pollard is uh, our main speaker, but it'll be at the Embassy Suites in, in Rogers. We're looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Michael. Yes, sir. In the background is a track from the brand new recording by the Yellow Jackets. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from the Yellow Jackets as well as Jamie Owsley, Hendrix Merkins. Dave Stryker, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF 91.3 FM. Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsburg tonight at 10 on KUAF 91.3, and then tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. You can find KUAF 3 for free on your HD radio.
at KUAF.com by asking your smart speaker to play KUAF3 or by using the free KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. In just about five minutes, how drought, heat, and an increasing population can have an effect on water use in northwest Arkansas. There may be no better place to celebrate Water Quality Month than at Illinois River Watershed Partnership Sanctuary in Cave Springs. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich takes us there to learn some downstream ecology. The nonprofit Illinois River Watershed Partnership maintains a lovely woodland sanctuary containing an emerald-colored lake fed by a rushing cold water spring. Morgan Keeling, program manager, stands on a wooden footbridge beneath the artesian spring, which surges out of a forested cave at the base of a sheer limestone bluff. This spring flows into Osage Creek, which flows into the Illinois River. Then it meets Lake Tenkiller in Tahlequah, hits the Arkansas River, where it travels back across Arkansas, where it hits the Mississippi River. From there, the water travels down into the Gulf where it meets the salinated water of the oceans and hopefully mixes. When it doesn't mix, that's when we get these conditions that can create hypoxic zones. The Gulf of Mexico hypoxic or dead zone is a consequence of upstream agriculture and industrial chemicals and wastewater treatment effluent referred to as nutrients, which feed massive algal blooms that sink, decompose, and deplete dissolved oxygen from rivers, streams, and oceans. A hypoxic zone is basically where there's not enough oxygen in the water to support life, and that can be plant life, that can be animal life. So many creatures, aquatic creatures, that are highly affected by this are fish and crustaceans. And of course, that's going to affect up the food chain, the herons and otters that rely on those to uh, live in those areas right where the Gulf and the, the Mississippi River meet each other. Scientists estimate the current size of the dead zone in the Gulf, the second largest in the world, to be over 6,300 square miles. The Mississippi River, which drains more than 30 U.S. states and several Canadian provinces discharging into the Gulf, illustrates just how upstream fresh watershed pollution accumulates far downstream out to sea. The hypoxic zone created by this is due to some of the activ daily activities that we don't really even think about. Things like fertilizer runoff from suburban lawns, agriculture and golf courses add the nutrients into the water. Mainly we see a lot of uh, nutrients added into the water from soil erosion and stream bank erosion disturbances. There's also ad added nutrients from wastewater treatment plants and then of course just general decomposition in the air referring to deposition of atmospheric nitrogen from combusted fossil fuels produced by automobiles, natural gas, and coal-fired power plants. Unlike Oklahoma, which enforces nutrient-rich water quality metrics, Arkansas, influenced by agribusiness interests, does not. Only voluntary practices the Arkansas Natural Resources Division has created a nutrient reduction strategy, and in that reduction strategy, it labels 
sub-basins or watersheds as different tiers. The Illinois River watershed is listed as a tier one for voluntary nutrient reduction and Beaver Lake Reservoir as tier two. So as we continue to address these problems, um, the Arkansas Nutrient Reduction Strategy is one way that we can kind of all rally around the strategy being set forth by the Natural Resources Division for all of us. Leif Kindberg, executive director of the nonprofit Illinois River Watershed Partnership, IRWP for short, says his team provides key resources to stakeholders in the watershed. IRWP and other partners throughout the region have a number of programs available to landowners, including uh, a wetland tax credit that's available uh, for landowners here in Northwest Arkansas. The tax credit is not implemented by IRWP, it's implemented by Natural Resources Division. Uh, we implement the riparian restoration program um, as well as the septic tank replacement pilot program. Um, and those all provide funding to landowners and to homeowners for uh, various water quality improvement best management practices. There are also a number of other programs that we can help connect um, uh, landowners and homeowners to. Uh, to improve water quality from Natural Resources Conservation Service and others. Listeners can find a wealth of resources and programs posted on irwp.org, as well as volunteer opportunities. Donations are needed and welcomed. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. We're using a lot of water these days. The Beaver Water District has reported a record one-day use this summer. And with more people moving here, more water will be used. But Kevin Imboden, the Chief Operations Officer of Beaver Water District, says there is enough water to sustain Northwest Arkansas, and there is work underway to make sure that stays the case. This week, he talked with Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope, who is covering growth and its effects on the region for us about water supply and infrastructure. Well, with the somewhat milder temperatures and then the precipitation that we've gotten over the last week and a half or two, we've seen a decline in water sales they're still very strong. I would say they've dropped about 10 to 15 percent from what our peaks were, but they have softened somewhat. During this time of year, do you see a lot of demand as the year goes on, or what's your heaviest times of the year? Right. We typically would see July and August being the strongest months as far as water sales go, and then uh, June and September are typically slightly less. That can be dependent on weather. You know, we have had some years where might have a mild July or August with some rain, and we actually could sell some more water in those shoulder months, if you will. But typically, July and August are our big months, and then it tapers down some going into and coming out of the summer. And so when it comes to reaching capacity, what does it take for that capacity to be reached? Because... As we said earlier, there was about 39 million gallons shy of full capacity. So what does that look like on your end? Does that mean that a whole lot more people are going to have to use a whole lot more water? What does that look like? Yeah, so we saw 102.5 million gallons, which was our peak day all time. And our nominal capacity of our treatment system is 140 million gallons in a day. So we were a little above 70% of our nominal capacity. Now, we can actually get some more capacity out of our plant than that 140 million gallons in a day, but we still had quite a bit of excess capacity. And our plant performed very well and met the demands of those peak days that we saw. Uh, and our employees really stepped up and did a great job making sure that our equipment was ready to go into that type of event. And also, they kept everything in top-notch shape throughout that event. So... 
As Northwest Arkansas grows, we've seen our water sales here grow drastically. Uh, I would say over the last five years or so, we probably averaged about a four to five percent increase in water sales annualized. But coming into this hot, dry summer that we just experienced, we were actually about seven percent ahead of last year on water sales. And if you recall, the first part of the calendar year 2022 was a pretty wet year through around the first part of June. So we were about 7% ahead in a wet year. So that was significant for us to see that type of growth in a wet year because weather can impact our water sales, certainly, as, as we saw with this summer drought. But with taking the effects of the summer drought and high temperatures that we saw for a sustained time, you know, I would anticipate that we're probably going to be over 10% growth rate for this year compared to last year in water sales. But we're in good position. We try to be very proactive and systems performing very well now. and We'll make sure that we stay ahead of that growth. So what kind of projects do you have in the works or have been done or uh, will be taking place later on to get water out to these growing areas? Yeah, we have a bunch of projects planned. The one that's coming up first will be a project that we're about 90% complete on the plans, and that's called our Western Corridor Expansion. And basically what that project entails will be construction of about 40,000 linear feet of steel pipeline, 60-inch diameter steel pipeline. And that pipeline will extend uh, from our treatment plant in Lowell westward and go under I-49 and out to a location that's in northwest Springdale. And at that point, we will construct a large pump station, and that pump station will pump water uh, eventually into all four of the customer cities, Fayetteville, Springdale, Bentonville, Rogers. So that project is it's designed to give redundancy, to give additional paths for our treated water to go from our plant to those customer cities. It also obviously increases capacity with having another route, another large pipeline to carry that water. And then it also helps the customer cities in that we will be providing them water at another point in their distribution systems, which will help their the internal workings of their distribution system and help keep their pressures and flows at a higher level performance. So projects uh, will be a very important one for our customer cities. We anticipate that project being completed at the end of 2025, and the projected cost is about $130 million, a little over that. But we have several other projects that are coming behind that project, but there'll be a little bit of a gap. So as more people are coming into the area, what what does that look like, that demand look like for y'all on a day-to-day basis at the Water District? Yeah, you know, it's it's something that's dynamic. We calculate growth rates all the time, and we it depends on what period that you're looking at, obviously, on what that growth rate calculates out to be. But one of the things that we do here at the district, and it's pretty common for water utilities to do this, uh, we have what we call a master plan. And that really drives, you know, how we're planning financially and operationally for large capital projects and future regulatory changes and more stringent water treatment requirements, things of that nature. But one of the big components of those master plans is to project future demands on our system. And so we take data and we slice it and and calculate a lot of different ways and try to project as best we can what those growth rates are going to look like. The last master plan we did was full master plan was in 2015 and it was updated in 2019. But we've actually budgeted for a new master plan uh, that will be done 
in our next fiscal year that starts October 1st. That should take until about next summer to complete, and we'll be working with Black & Veatch, a very experienced and reputable engineering firm. And um, again, they'll be looking at start with projected demands. Uh, they'll look at our infrastructure from the lake to all the way to our, uh, the edge of our property and look at all kinds of future uh, regulatory requirements, all sorts of things to, to help us plan to be proactive to deal with this tremendous growth that we're seeing. And so talking about more people in the area, um, you know, school's going to be starting back uh, specifically in Fayetteville. We're going to be seeing uh, more people around because college students will be returning to campus. Is there much difference in water demand in the school year? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, when you look at our, the total area that we serve, you know, we probably serve a population of around 400,000 or more people and then a lot of industries as well. So when you look at that total water usage across our footprint of our service territory, when the students come back to the U of A, it really is not a measurable impact to us. And I actually talked to the folks over at Fayetteville, and, and they said that they saw some increases, but it's really not measurable, not something really significant. So although there will be some, you know, slightly, in relative terms, slightly increased demand from those students returning, it won't really have a, a significant impact on Beaverwater District. Based on my conversation with Fayetteville, it should not have a significant impact on them as well, although it, it obviously will increase water usage for both of our entities. So for folks at home who are striving to be more conscientious of how much water they use and whatever capacity that may be, do you have any wise words or advice for people who uh, want to decrease the amount of water they use or anything along those lines? Yeah, you know, to me, over time, we've seen appliances get more water efficient and fixtures get more water efficient. And while, you know, I think those transitions and evolutions have been great, I think probably the biggest place that customers can save uh, on their water bill and also use water more wisely is on the irrigation side. Uh, we see a tremendous amount of irrigation these days, especially in our region. For example, the water usage in July and August, we see it's probably one and a half to two times as much as we would see, say, in February. And that's due almost entirely to irrigation. So that would be the piece of advice that I would offer to customers is that understand what your lawn needs, the type of grass it is, and don't over-irrigate. Make sure your system is working properly and just use that irrigation water wisely. You know, we our infrastructure here is in great shape. We're going to make sure that we're always addressing the needs of the region. It's not a, an issue of uh, our not being able to keep up. It's not that at all. The lake is in good shape. You know, even through this drought, the lake level is still in great shape. It's a wonderful resource for us. And the customer cities, they do a great job of dealing with their growth. So it's not an issue of uh, the entities involved not keeping up or the lake. But it's just, you know, being good stewards of our resources and, and actually potentially saving the customers out there, the end users, some money on the water bill. Now, to finish up, did I, is there anything that you want to add or is there something that you wish was talked about when it comes to uh, water in northwest Arkansas or anything that has to do with your job? Well, that master plan that I was talking about earlier, uh, one of the big components of that plan is a capital improvement plan. And that thing will lay out large capital projects, say, over the next 15 years. 
And what we're seeing is those projects that were spread out over 12 to 15 years, that timeline is shrinking. All those projects that were projected to be still several years out are moving closer every day as we're seeing this growth continue in Northwest Arkansas or even accelerate. So what that's going to do is these projects that would have been spaced out, you know, typically in the water business, you spend it's high infrastructure and relatively low margins. So it's typical to spend millions or tens of millions of dollars on a project and then, for lack of better terms, ride that project for 10 to 15 years and accumulate more financial resources before you have to build something big again. But what we're seeing is those gaps between projects are going to be smaller and smaller. But the good news is that's part of our job is to project the the financial impact to everyone and and to plan for those. When we do our financial projections, uh, our rates are are low. Currently, they're $1.41 for 1,000 gallons of water, you know, which is you're going to pay more in the local quick shop for a bottle of water than what we charge for 1,000 gallons of it. But, um, you know, we anticipate that while there will be obviously some upward pressure on our rates that we would charge to the customer cities, and ultimately that would probably be passed on to the end users, that upward pressure and potential increases are going to be really very manageable based on our projections. So uh, it's going to put us, you know, make us be on our toes as far as planning and making sure that we're getting those facilities designed and constructed. But uh, we really feel at the end of the day that we're going to be proactive, stay ahead of the growth. And when the dust settles, have some very, very good rates compared to the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, to me, it's good news. It's just it's something that all the entities involved with delivering high quality drinking water in the Northwest Arkansas is having to deal with this extremely high growth and a high inflation environment. But I think we're faring very well right now. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us and or speak with me. And um, you have a good one. Yeah, thank you, Anna. Take care. Kevin M. Bowden is the Chief Operations Officer at Beaver Water District. He spoke with Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope earlier this week. Anna's reporting originates from the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio. Just hours after Arkansas lawmakers gave final approval to legislation accelerating tax cuts and funding a school safety program, Governor Asa Hutchinson signed the bills into law. Surrounded by Republican legislators yesterday afternoon, he praised them for completing a special session within three days. The governor also said this meets a pledge he made when taking office. Today is an historical day in Arkansas. In in 1929, Arkansas enacted uh, the income tax uh, in this state. We're one of the first states to do so. At that time, the tax rate was 5%. In my inaugural address in 2015, I said one of my top priorities was to be more competitive in our tax rates, particularly the individual income tax rate. When Governor Hutchinson became governor, the tax rate was at 7 percent, which was the highest in state history. Senator Jonathan Dismang, a Republican from Beebe, said reducing the state tax rate was needed to make Arkansas competitive with its surrounding states. It's not hard to drive and see what's happening in Memphis versus West Memphis or Texarkana, Arkansas versus Texarkana, Texas. We need to be competitive. We owe it to our citizens. And I think this, you know, it doesn't get us where we need to be, but it gets us a a step closer. The tax cuts, which were approved during last year's regular session, will now be retroactive to the beginning of this year. Governor Hutchinson reiterated he would have supported consideration of raising teacher salaries, but said there was not legislative support. He said it makes sense to wait until an adequacy study is completed, and he says he's confident lawmakers will take up the issue during next year's regular session of the legislature. 
And Arkansas voters may indeed decide if the state will legalize recreational marijuana. The Arkansas Supreme Court is granting a temporary injunction to allow the measure to be back on the ballot in November, at least until the court decides what is next. After the Arkansas Board of Commissioners ruled last week that the measure's ballot title was misleading, the group that initiated the measure, Responsible Growth Arkansas, has had enough signatures certified to qualify for the ballot. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Arkansas Times and the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association present the Medical Marijuana Health Expo Saturday, August 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Springdale. Medical professionals, pharmacists, and local bud tenders will lead seminars on treating a variety of symptoms with medical marijuana. Details and tickets at centralarkansatickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from her Bella Vista office is Becca Martin-Brown, the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Welcome, Becca. Siri, would you please tell Kyle that I'm not speaking to him? All right. I I know what this is about because one of your favorite (laughs) people in the world is going to be at the Fayetteville Public Library, Henry Rollins, tonight. And... um, I'll be on stage with him. And you get to be the MC. I don't think that's fair somehow. Did anybody ask me? No, no, they didn't. On the other hand, I've seen Rollins a bunch of times, and he's amazing. What question would you want me to ask him? Wow. Now think about that and get back to me. I will. We'll we'll come back around to that at the end of this. Okay. I do want you to count, because I think that there is a word Mm -hmm. that will get said more at the Fayetteville Public Library than any time before or after this. And I want to count from you. Okay. Because then you and I and all of our listeners who often wonder this will know exactly how many of those we get. If you don't know who Henry Rollins is, he was the front man for Black Flag. He's a speaker much like George Carlin, only I think with less intention to be funny and more to say things that are important. Yeah. And he will be at the Fayetteville Public Library at 6 o'clock tonight, line up at 5.15 to get in. And he'll be back in Arkansas for a show September 24th at Temple Live in Fort Smith. So if something goes wrong with your plan for today, put that in your books. And our conversation tonight will touch on... Not just public libraries or punk rock, that's the title of his um, visit, but also technology, free speech, the First Amendment, disinformation, things like that. If that's not your cup of tea, this whole weekend is jam-packed, so we've just got a calendar. Okay. At 6 tonight, you can go over to George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville, right around the corner from the library, and go to happy hour with Full House and stick around for a show at 9 o'clock with Funk Factory. Going to be a big crowd there. And Benton. Yeah. Well, and the kids are back, aren't they? More or less, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be a big crowd everywhere. If you're on the north end of the listening area, they're having Walker Landing Nights tonight at 6.30 at Crystal Bridges Museum, a free showing of the film The Labyrinth. In Springdale, the Jones Center is showing, as part of its Cinema Plus series, In the Heights, the film. They'll also have live music and a free kids' activity and food, and all of it is free except for the food that you buy. If you're in Fort Smith, Annie is in its last weekend of performances at Fort Smith Little Theater. Showtime is 7.30 tonight. Tickets are $20. 
back in Fayetteville, My Fair Lady. The touring production is wrapping up at 8 o'clock tonight at the Walton Art Center in Fayetteville. And in Rogers' Disaster, which is a jukebox musical based on the campy 70s disaster films, is in its last weekend, and it's at 8 o'clock tonight at Arkansas Public Theater, and tickets start at $25. On Saturday, how much time have we got? On Saturday, it's Chappie Crossing Farmers and Artisans Market in Fort Smith from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., including food trucks and live music and all sorts of fun things. It's Elk Fest in Elkins at the Community Center, Bunch Park, the Public Library, the Wellness Center, and they're going to have a car show and a vendor fair and a dog show and food. That's from 8 to 4 tomorrow. There's an author visit at 1.30 tomorrow at the Fort Smith Main Library with Galen McBride Edwards, who is the author of Frankie, Nancy, and Rose on the Mountain. There's an author talk at 2 o'clock tomorrow at the Fayetteville Public Library, if it survives. <laughs> With Doug Stowe, who is the author of Wisdom of Our Hands. He's a woodworker from Eureka Springs. Oh, and I tell you what, he is just a wonderful person. Isn't he? Yeah. And so fun to listen to. Yes. I mean, he makes beautiful things, but he also speaks beautifully about those things. He does. My Fair Lady at the Walton Art Center at 2 and 8 on Saturday. Earl and them play at 6 o'clock tomorrow at Ozark Folkways. Ten bucks. Yeah. Ten bucks for Earl and them. Annie is on stage for the last time at Fort Smith Little Theater at 7.30 tomorrow. George's has something that's definitely different. The Hell's a Poppin' Circus Sideshow. Oh, yeah. This is sword swallowing and ah uh, Yeah, this is things Kyle does not like. Right. 8 o'clock tomorrow. Tickets start at $20. And the next to last performance of Disaster at Arkansas Public Theater in Rogers at 8 o'clock. And then on Sunday, it slows down. On Sunday, you can take your furry friends and go to the Springdale Aquatic Center from 1 to 3 for a pooch plunge. That sounds fun. It's a swimming day for dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And admission is a donation of some kind of pet food, something you take care of pets with. And then the last performance of My Fair Lady at 2 at the Walton Art Center and the last performance of Disaster at 2 at Arkansas Public Theater in Rogers. I'll say this. If you're bored this weekend... It's not our fault. <laughs> no kidding. I've heard wonderful reviews of My Fair Lady. I've heard wonderful reviews of Annie. And I've seen Disaster. And it is so funny that your face hurts. But you get to talk to Henry Rollins. Yes. So here's the question. Okay, excellent. Give it to me. Why? Because he's roughly in our age demographic. Right. Why does he keep doing what he does? Why doesn't he throw up his hands and go live on an island somewhere warm? I'm going to ask him that, so stay okay. tuned. Okay. Don't forget to count. I want to know I how many I give. Okay. All right. Becca Martin-Brown gives us a rundown every Friday, and we appreciate that. Becca, we'll meet back here next Friday. How's that? I'll be here. My name is Corey Martin. I teach uh, physical science and biology. Corey Martin teaches in the Bentonville School District. This summer, she was one of about a dozen teachers participating in the two-week-long Northwest Arkansas Writing Project 
that took place on the University of Arkansas campus. The project marked 25 years this July. It's two weeks set aside for teachers to write, write some more, share their writing, then write more. The idea? The writing can help teachers explore better ways to teach and communicate better in the classroom. Corey Martin says since she's a science teacher, she was surprised that she was invited to take part in a writing project. I got an email saying someone had recommended me. I honestly thought about emailing them back and asking if they meant to send this to like a different Corey, perhaps. Like maybe it was just like a wrong mailing list thing. Um, I also taught AP research last year, and so it did go through my head. I wondered if maybe someone in the district had signed me up to make me more of a writing teacher. Well, turns out the 2022 Northwest Arkansas Writing Project made a big impact on her. I definitely think so. Um, I've got some great ideas about different creative things that we can do to sort of model some of those creative processes that you see like in like arts classes and language classes. Um, I'm actually going to read you something about something I'm really passionate about, which is like storytelling in science and how we can kind of bring that to like engage students who are like that, who are kind of like afraid of how technical um, science can seem. Storytelling, including biographies, parables, fables, legends, helped us understand people, concepts, and places better for millennia. And Corey says storytelling, done the right way, can certainly grab attention. I know that my ninth graders in particular will splice up any time I say like, hey, this could kill you. Um, so I really love those things too, like just really graphic kind of macabre things. Um, if they can find out about like that or explosions or dinosaurs or all the kind of staples of things that you liked as a kid and were interested in, if we can bring those things in, then they're great hooks. Last month, Corey read us part of an essay that she wrote to help us all identify a little bit more with science and scientists. All science teachers have a favorite scientist, and therefore they have a favorite story connecting them to their students. My favorite is Alfred Russell Wallace, whom even educators fail to recognize. Wallace was the co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection. While Darwin is a household name, Wallace co-authored the original paper read to the Linnaean Society of London. 15 years Darwin's junior, he was a British naturalist who first went to the Amazon to collect fossils and samples, contracted malaria, lost his brother, and then spent 10 days shipwrecked having lost all of said samples. Instead of lamenting his fate while delirious and shipwrecked, he recounted in his journal, journal the brilliance of a meteor shower and cataloged the colors of a new bird species. For me, he summed up what a scientist is supposed to be, someone who makes observations and appreciates the marvel that they are. Wallace later visited the Malay archipelago and contracted malaria again. Hallucinating and feverish, he makes the connection between his observations and how species adapt to their natural environments. He wrote a letter to the illustrious Darwin, who immediately panics. Who is this young nobody who dreamt up his theory on an island chain he's never heard from while apparently suffering from a tropical fever? How is he going to publish his paper now? When I tell this story to students, they are enthralled with the fate and implications of both Darwin and Wallace. They have a hard time believing that Wallace was willing to give Darwin most of the glory and largely feel that he's been cheated by both his peers and history itself. When I tell them that Wallace did it because he was more interested in educating people for its own sake more than the credit, that he was in awe of the natural world and its myriad of variations, I see on my students' face an echo of that same enthusiasm. There are things they too want to know just for the sake of knowing. Now picture Darwin. You've probably imagined an 18th century portrait. There's a white guy with a long gray beard and a serious face. 
You might imagine he spent most of his time in a laboratory surrounded by vials of intimidating substances in a windowless room. The words Galapagos, benches, natural selection might float up from your subconscious as you try to repress memories of high school biology spent in a similar windowless room on a black lab table. That is my student's impression of Darwin too, and while it's accurate, it's not precise and it's not very interesting. Instead, Darwin was the third son of a wealthy family in England. As a third son, he suffered the ultimate hashtag first world problems of the English gentry called what to do with his life. He wasn't going to inherit, and while his father would have preferred him become a doctor, he found medical science to be icky. He wanders along a dock and finds a captain looking for a gentleman scholar to accompany him on his journey around the world. Darwin immediately signs up for a long gap year. And that gap year, he'll do some impressive research with adaptive radiation amongst species in the Galapagos Islands, but he'll also spend some time just hurling marine iguanas by their tails into the encroaching surf. See how much more interesting Darwin becomes as a person. Our students can understand all of these things. Fear of disappointing parents, searching for purpose, escaping the responsibilities in favor of adventure. Humanizing scientists is an entryway into the curriculum for many students who might otherwise feel bored or intimidated. Furthermore, students are more likely to remember an interesting story and therefore understand the consequences of that scientist's discoveries or inventions. Embedded within the marine iguana story, we can talk about species adaptation, island biogeography, and natural selection, but it's also just a funny image of that same boring bearded guy hurling three-foot-long lizards. Corey Martin is a science teacher in the Bentonville School District. She was just one of the teachers we spent time with this summer during the Northwest Arkansas Writing Project. Over the next few weeks, we'll hear from more of those teachers right here on Ozarks at Large. On the final episode of KUAF's limited-run podcast series, The R Word, we hear more from a community conversation of black Christian leaders on the response from the white Christian church to racism in Northwest Arkansas. The thing that I see time and time and time and time again is that there's this sense of wanting to do just enough. Um, but really when it is behind the scenes, when it comes to actually doing the work that creates the lasting change, what we tend to do is to side with power, convenience, and comfort over doing what is right. The conclusion of The R Word, available now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is Courtney Lanny. And Courtney, welcome, first, welcome back. And second, we're going to talk vampires. Kyle, thanks for having me. First and second, yes. Yes, we are, Kyle. All right, so... Of all the genres in Hollywood, on movies, in television, and actually global cinema, one that has the potential to be the most tired, vampires. They've been making vampire movies since film was invented. So always trying to find a different way, a new way, a novel way to portray these characters. What's the movie this week, and did they accomplish that? So the movie this week is called Day Shift, and I'd say... Yeah, they, they, they accomplished it well enough. You know, I, I think vampires uh, are almost, you know, there are subgenres of vampire movies. You can't just say vampire movies because you have straight up horror ones like uh, 
Let Me In and 30 Days of Night. You have classics like... Um, Dracula. I always forget. Right, Dracula, um, played by Count Dooku and Saruman, whose name I've forgotten. See, Christopher... Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee, yes. You have his Dracula movies dating right. back to the 50s and 60s. Right. Hammer Films made those movies. Yes. And then, of course, you have uh, my personal favorite, uh, Daybreakers. You have the more sci-fi zombies, which I, or uh, vampires, which I, I enjoy quite a bit. Well, this one stars an Oscar winner. We'll get that to that in a minute. In fact, the cast is... Just looking at the cast, it makes me think this is a f- intended to be kind of a fun movie. It is. You know, if you look at all the different vampire movies we have so far and try to compare it to this one, I'd say this one comes out pretty close to uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. Many people will remember Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney, uh, sort of a westernish feel to a, a vampire killing movie. And that's that's what this is. This movie's fun. Um Got Jamie Foxx in the lead role as a vampire hunter working in L.A., trying to scrape enough money together to pay for things like his daughter's tuition and his daughter's braces. Um, and, you know, they, they cast Snoop Dogg in this movie as a vampire killer, and they just told him, have fun, kill vampires. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. I don't think he's going to win an Oscar for his performance, but it did make me wonder why we waited until 2022 for Hollywood to give us a movie about Snoop Dogg killing vampires. I'm sold. I'm in already. So uh, Jamie Foxx, who, of course, won the Oscar for Ray, he is the lead vampire killer. What's in it for him? Well, like I said, uh, he he sells vampire fangs to get money. In fact, in this movie, they have almost, almost a tiny bit of a John Wick-style setup. They've got like a secret vampire hunters union um, with just a whole bunch of vampire hunters. And you join the union, um, you get health benefits, oddly enough, which I imagine you need in such a deadly job like this, and cash, which again, he can use to pay for things like his daughter's tuition and his daughter's braces. And he's just cool. This movie is borderline B-movie, mm-hmm. but the one person that keeps it out of B-movie territory is Jamie Foxx. He's just so dang charming and cool. So you have fun. Is there blood and gore? Yes. Not... not Enough that, you know, you'd turn off your, your mm-hmm. average viewer. It's it's fun, average, bloody vampire movie. All right. This sounds like for 120 minutes, if you like vampire movies, if you like Jamie Foxx, you're going to like this. But you may not remember the specific plot points in a few weeks. That sounds about right. Yeah. And that's on Netflix. That's on Netflix starting today. Anything coming to the movie theaters or to other streaming services this week? Yeah, this is kind of a streaming-heavy week. Um, there's a lot of stuff coming out to, to streaming. For example, on Paramount+, Plus, they have a new film coming out called Secret Headquarters. It's a new superhero movie starring Owen Wilson, who has a secret headquarters. Spoiler alert. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, what will we talk about next week? Next week, I'll review a new anime film for you in the Dragon Ball Z universe. You know, even if you don't know anything about Japanese animation... You've probably heard or seen Dragon Ball Z. This is a new movie set in that that universe. You're going to have to, I mean, I have seen those words Dragon Ball Z for about 50 years, it seems. And I've never really known whether it was a game, whether it was a video game, whether it was a television series, whether it was a movie franchise. So I'm going to learn a lot next week. All of the above, Kyle.
all of the above. Okay. I do know it's one of the most profitable franchises, entertainment franchises in history. It is, and it's been going for quite some time. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. You can read the full review of Day Shift in today's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. You can watch it today on Netflix. Courtney, as always, thank you so much for your time. Kyle, thanks for having me. U of A law professor Danielle Weatherby is exploring, among other things, the causes and effects of political and cultural polarization. Speech narcissism is a term that characterizes what I perceive to still be a serious American problem. And one of the reasons why we as a country are as polarized as we seem to be today and often find ourselves at an impasse on matters of public policy. What I mean in in the research is that um, the narcissism reflects a sort of egotism or fixation with one's own worldview and life experiences that makes us essentially unable to listen to opposition viewpoints. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas, available at KUAF.com or at arkansasresearch.uark.edu. The Cherokee Nation is reopening its Close for Kids assistance program for those who missed the initial deadline or whose citizenship application was processed after the first deadline. The program provides $150 in clothing assistance for every qualifying Cherokee child, regardless of age or income level. Applications reopen Monday morning at 8, and they will close at 5 p.m. Monday, August 29th. Citizens can use the Gadoji portal at Cherokee.org to apply. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Greenland. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors this Friday included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich, Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versey. We'll be back with you Sunday morning at 9 for the next edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. And we have so much planned for next week's complete week of brand new shows. You can listen to Ozarks at Large every weekday at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can also take advantage of the free Ozarks at Large podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again very soon.